Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to see all of you here. And thank you, those of you who are in overflow, thank you for doing that as we get ready for next weekend. And of course, we're really pushing toward the Super Bowl for Church World, that's Easter. And so we're excited about it. It's great to see you this morning. Hope your week's off to a great start. And thank you for being here for these services. We're in a series, as you know, called Proof. And what we've been doing is examining the seven miracles of Jesus that John recorded in the Gospel of John that underscore the reality that Jesus Christ was who he says he was, and he can do what he says he can do. Now, there were a lot of more miracles. There were a lot more miracles that Jesus did than what John has recorded. In fact, in John 20, verse 30 and 31, John said there were many other things Jesus did that are not written in the Bible. But these things, he said, are written, here's why, that we might believe. So the proof that the Bible provides is so that we could come to faith. And so that those of us who have exercised our faith in Christ would have that faith strengthened through the miracles that Jesus did. Because a miracle is simply an impossible thing. And God is good at working out impossible things. Have you ever faced something in your life that was just seemingly impossible? You couldn't figure out what to do, where to go, how it was going to turn out. And oftentimes when we're faced with those impossible things, they bring us really to the end of ourselves. And I said last week, oftentimes we don't turn to God till we get to the end of us. Because as long as we fix it, can fix it, we will. As long as we think we can fix it, we'll try. <laughs> and it's only after we're at the end of ourselves that we come to a place where we say, I give up. <laughs> I mean, I've outpunted my coverage. You know, God, you're going to have to do something or I'm in trouble. And then he steps in, steps up, and he can do what no one else can do. And John said, I saw seven things that were astonishing. And he records them in the book. And John wrote those things as an eyewitness to those things. And not only did John see them as an eyewitness, but all the other apostles saw them as well. And don't forget this, there were hundreds and even thousands of people who witnessed the miracles of Jesus. They saw it. Now, in a court of law, how many witnesses do you need to establish a fact? Well, the facts were established by hundreds of people, even thousands the day Jesus fed the 5,000 who left there going, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> that was a miracle. He did what no one else could do. Took two fish, multiplied it, five little pieces of bread, and we all ate. There were even leftovers. And so he has the ability, friend, of doing what no one else can do. So I say that at the onset to some of you who are facing a difficult situation, something that may be seemingly impossible. Can I, would you hear me tell you that there's nothing too hard for God? There's no one too hard for God. There's nothing he cannot do. And in this narrative, we're going to see a man faced with an impossible situation. The only one that could help him was God, and God stepped up in his life in a big way. Here in this miracle, we see how God healed a man, the Bible said, who was born blind. So if you have a Bible, look with me to John 9. Let's read the narrative, and then we'll break it apart and think about it a little bit. John 9, verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus replied, neither. This man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
And then Jesus said, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And so while I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now he says that kind of parenthetical to the narrative, but he's reminding them that he's on a limited basis. He has a limited time. He's going to be leaving, going to the cross soon. There'll be that Easter celebration. He will ascend back to heaven. And so he will not physically be with them. And so he said, look, I'm a man on a mission. I'm not gonna be here very long. The day is, is long, night is coming, and so we've got to get this done while we can. And I, I would tell you, that's a pretty good word to everybody. I mean, you know, life is short, the night is coming, we need to redeem the time, we need to make the most of every moment that God gives us. And so Jesus is reminding the, the, his disciples, let's be intentional, let's be purposeful. And then he goes on to say, after this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, put that in the man's eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Well, the first thing that jumped out at me as I read the narrative preparing to kind of share with you some things that I feel like the Lord is showing me is that what I've called the simply the mystery of it. This is a mysterious thing that is happening here. This man born blind. And you see the mystery of it in the questions that the apostles ask him. They ask him this simple question. The simple question is this, why? Why? Have you ever experienced something in your life, maybe a loved one, maybe a child, maybe a spouse, maybe a friend? Have you ever experienced something in life that just caused you to go, this makes no sense? I mean, why this and why me and why not? Why would a loving God allow something like this to happen? Have you ever said that or thought that? You see something on the news and you're thinking, man, that is terrible, that's so evil, that is so wrong. How could a God that loves us all allow this sort of thing to happen? And I gotta tell you, in my line of work, one of the things that I do is called apologetics, which is the defense of the faith. So I'm supposed to come out and give people from time to time different ways to think about the things that happen in life. And I'll be real honest with you, a lot of times I don't have a clue. <laughs> I really, I just don't know why. I have no idea, and I find myself in good company because Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, asked God on numerous occasions, you know, why? And finally, God just said to Isaiah, Isaiah, as high as your head are, uh, is above, uh, above the, uh, I'm sorry, as high as the clouds are above your head, so high are my ways above yours, and so high are my thoughts above yours. Now, he wasn't being condescending, though he could, he's God. <laughs> he was saying to Isaiah, in essence, if I explained it, you wouldn't understand it. And if you did understand it, you might not agree with it. So trust me in this. And it's hard sometimes to trust God in those things that we don't understand because we have an inquiring minds and we want to know. <laughs> and one of the questions that has plagued everybody throughout all centuries is that question, why? And sometimes it is the one question that none of us can find an answer that will really satisfy our heart. And so here are the apostles, don't miss the setup. Here are the apostles with Jesus. Here's a man born blind, born blind from, born blind from birth, right? <laughs> uh, and he, here they are faced with this situation and they just say, why? This makes no sense. Why would this happen to this man? And then they offer up this strange um, uh, uh, potentiality. They say, uh, was it sin? Was it something he did? And really the root of their question is, is, is in some religious training that these guys had gone through because there were people in the day who taught that if you go through something bad, that God is judging you for something wrong. 
In fact, the rabbis would erroneously teach that verse in Exodus 20, verse 5, where it says the sins of the fathers are visited on the children from the second and third generation. You find it again in Exodus 34, where they were being taught that, Dad, if you, uh, you, know, if you eat chocolate, your kids are going to get cavities. <laughs> that you're going to pass on the mistakes that you've made. Your kids, God is going to hold your children accountable for the things that you've done. And that's not what's being taught there at all. That is not the reality of Exodus 20 or Exodus 34. What he was saying is if you don't pour in and you don't train your kids to do right things and you're doing wrong things in front of them, they're going to follow your pattern. And it may take a generation or two before they figure it out and get it straightened out. So he's saying some habits that you instill in your children are things that they're going to pick up and naturally do. As a parent, if you have poor communication skills and the way you uh, handle conflict is who can get the loudest wins the, the fight, <laughs> your kids are probably going to have that same conflict resolution skill. And that's all he's saying. He's just saying that you and I sometimes as parents will pass off some unhealthy characteristics to our kids, causes them to go see Dr. Phil when they get older, <laughs> and, and then, you know, then they kind of fix it and, and correct it. But it has nothing to do with a generational curse, which was what was being implied. They were talking about some genetic things that were being passed down uh, in some physical attributes from the genetic things that were being passed down as being judgment on people, and that's not the case. Now, the genetic things happen because we're in a fallen world. And by the way, God didn't create it that way. You go back to the book of Genesis, God created the world in perfection. He created mankind in perfection. No disease, no problems, I mean, imperfection. He placed in the garden, the Bible says, a tree, and he said, you can eat of all the trees, you can have all this freedom that you want, I've given you perfect will, there's just one tree you can't partake of. And of course, somebody says, well, if God hadn't put the tree in the garden, man would not have then sinned. Well, look, if you don't have the choice, if you don't have a choice to, to refuse God, then you don't have the choice to choose him either. God didn't create man to be some mindless robot that just follows after him like a cult. He placed the tree in the garden to support the fact and underscore the reality that he's given us a choice. We have a mind. We can choose him or refuse him. And every day Adam and Eve live their day, they live their life in the light of the tree knowing I can choose to obey or I can refuse him. And you know the story. The Bible says the tempter comes into the picture in Genesis 3, and he offers them a, a, another way of thinking, and he says, hey, don't you want to be like God? Who doesn't want to be like God? <laughs> in fact, he even started the temptation by saying, has God said? Are you sure that's what God said? Are you sure you're reading the Bible right? Is that really in the Bible? And he took advantage of their ignorance of what God's word had said, or their apathy about it, <laughs> or their forgetfulness of it. And you know the story, those of you that are familiar with the record, that they did what God said don't do, and as a result, sin enters the picture, and death came as a result of sin, disease, and everything that happens in the world, everything that's wrong, that's where the train jumped the track. And of course, I've heard this argument too. They said, well, okay, Bill, uh, then if, if that's the case, then what about the devil? Didn't God create the devil? Yes. But just like the world and just like mankind, listen, he created the devil in perfection, he had perfect will. Let me prove it to you. Exodus chapter 28, verse 12. The Bible says concerning the devil, he said, you were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were perfect in your ways, listen, from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. 
God said, I created the devil perfectly. There was nothing wrong with him until the day in which iniquity was found. Now, iniquity, the root word is crookedness or deceit. And what happened when you understand the record is one day the devil decided, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be as big as God. I'm going to create a throne above God. I'm going to go over God's. I'm going to take over this place called heaven. I'm going to rule. And the minute that happened, God says, no, you're not. And he cast him to the earth, and he created a place called hell for the devil and his angels to live there. And so the record shows that God created the devil in perfection. He became the devil when he wanted his will above God's will. And so all this thing began spinning out of control. And so people were naturally thinking, well, you know, it's this generational curse that people can bring on themselves. Their father must have sinned. Their mother must have sinned in some way. That's why the child is born blind. Another thing that's interesting is back in that day, uh, there, were, there were medical blindness was not an uncommon thing. In fact, it, it was uh, the result oftentimes of STDs. And I don't need to explore that, right? <laughs> so, and so and what would happen with that is sometimes the children would uh, be affected by those illnesses. They didn't have proper treatments back then. They so it would affect kids, and sometimes kids were blind as a result. So, so get what the guys are thinking. The guys are thinking that God is so vengeful and God is so vindictive that he might take out some mistake, maybe that the parent made, take the mistake out on the kid. You see where they're coming from? In fact, it's supported by some of the religious thinking of the day. Some of the, some of the religious, remember the sins of the fathers visited the children. So some of the religious people were supporting that kind of thinking and encouraging that kind of thinking. And, and listen, when you get to Ezekiel 18, God finally is tired of the bad teaching that his people are getting from some of the religious people. Listen to what he said. Ezekiel 18, verse 1. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, now here's the proverb, listen to this. The fathers eat sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Did you get that? The dads eat sour grapes, the kids' teeth are set on edge. I said a minute ago, dad eats chocolate, the kids' teeth rot. (laughs) God says, why are you telling people that? Look down at Ezekiel 18, verse 3. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are not, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. I don't know how more plain he could make that. He said, stop it. Stop it. Quit telling people that. Quit telling people that God is going to deal with their kids for the mistakes that they've made. He's saying it's not true. Now, here's what is true. Ezekiel uh, 18, verse 20, same chapter down in the latter part. He said, the person who sins, who does wrong against God, will pay for that. The son will not bear the punishment for the father, nor the father for the son. What, What is he teaching there? Individual responsibility. He's saying you and I are individuals and we're responsible for our behavior and how it affects other people. End of story. It's not God saying you did something that disobedient, you hurt your fellow man, so I'm gonna let you skate, but I'm gonna take it out on your kids because that's the kind of God I am. (laughs) But that's what they were teaching. No wonder people were turned off by religion. And that had infected the thinking, I don't want you to miss this, that had infected the thinking of the apostles to the point that they were assuming that someone who was blind or lame or someone who had some disease obviously had done something wrong or God was just vengeful and doing something against them for something their parents had done. Now, there were times in the Bible where God did deal with generations of people collectively, but in every case, it's because these people consented together as a group to do something that went against God's will for their life. But God holds the individual accountable. 
So don't miss this when you read the narrative that there was a mystery surrounding this man. People were trying to connect dots, and sometimes you just can't connect dots. Sometimes God just won't explain himself, and sometimes nothing in life will make sense, so you're going to have to accept some of the mysteries that you and I deal with in life we will not comprehend or understand or agree with until we're in heaven one day. So here's the mystery. Notice the second thing that's obvious from the text I read this morning is not only the mystery of it, but the misery in it. (laughs) This guy had a miserable life. He's begging. He's at the temple steps begging. And there's a lot of reasons why they found their way at the temple steps. A lot of other beggars were there. People who had different problems were there. I've told you before, we tend to colonize things we can't cure. We group together as groups of people because we have uh, maladies in life that we can't cure. So we call, there used to be leper colonies back in the day. It was an incurable illness, so people were colonized. Well, they would naturally colonize around things they couldn't cure. Unhealthy people tend to attract unhealthy people. There's a lot of ways you can apply that. But here he is sitting at the steps of the temple begging. And he's probably there because he knew in his mind religious people are people who are trying to get into heaven, right? They're religious people are people who probably feel like if they can do good to their fellow man, that's a big old you know, gold star on their, on their calendar or whatever that God's going to take into account one day. He's going to weigh the good against the bad. If there's enough good that outweigh the bad, they'll get to go to heaven, you know. And so they're probably thinking, well, so go there. Because in fact, did you know this? There were people who went to the temple twice a day. So I'm sure the beggars were thinking, man, those people are really guilty. <laughs> I mean, if they're, they're into some really bad, if they're going twice a day, a day, I don't just mean on the weekend, every now and I mean, they're going twice every day. What must these dudes be into? And so they're really hitting them hard, man. You might ought to pay up a brother before you go in here now. You know what you've been doing. You, you definitely want God. You want to get on his good side, so do something to somebody here. And so there were, I'm just saying there were a lot of reasons why the guys were at the gate begging. There's a lot of reasons why they were on the steps. But one of the things that's obvious from this is everyone that walked by them were really powerless to help them. I mean, they may get them a meal, but they couldn't cure their problems. They couldn't get them on their feet. They couldn't help them restore life. They couldn't bring joy into their life. They could just do what they did, and to the credit of many, they did what they could. And sadly, when you read this, a lot of people just walked by and ignored them. Just walked by them. Remember the story Jesus told in Luke 10 about the good Samaritan, the guy that was beaten and left for dead? And Jesus said a Levite walked by him and looked at him and kept going. Well, the Levite, who were the Levites? They were the keepers of the law. So a Levite might assume this guy probably broke God's law, so he's getting what he deserves. He did the crime, he's going to have to do the time. And so there's not much compassion there. People who are legalists and people who are in that kind of thinking, there's not a lot of mercy that goes along with people like that. They're very judgmental, and I know you've encountered them in your life as I have in mine. And they represent the Levite, and they just look down on people, pontificate, talk down to them, and basically say, you're in the mess you're in, you deserve what's coming to you, and this is just God getting you, right? The Levite. Then Jesus said the priest went by. (laughs) Well, the Levite represents the law, the priest represents religion. And the priest looked at him and just shook his head and kept walking. I'm sure the priest said, well, that's just between you and God. He might have thrown a God bless you as he left, but he didn't do anything for him either. And it was only the good Samaritan that represented Jesus that came to the man and helped the man and did what he could to help this man in the situation. What's the point? 
The point is the man's life was being lived around people who were judging him constantly. Most of them were walking by him and not lifting a finger to help him in his situation. Guys, don't miss this. This was a, a man living a terrible life. So no wonder the apostle said, why? This is not fair. And then you see the answer of Jesus, which is my third thought before we go home. You see the ministry through it. You see how God is going to work through it. Look, I don't think he caused this man to be blind. He's God. He knew the man was, was blind. He's sovereign. He didn't cause it. I go back to a fallen world. I go back to the entrance of sin. I go back to the idea that, you know, our genes are messed up. Things get happened, you know, just happen because we're in a fallen world. We're in fallen bodies. We're not perfect. Uh, the, the, the original body God designed in the, in the garden was one that would live forever. What was sin into the picture, man. Remember, we're on a, Jesus said, the night is coming. We're, we're on borrowed time. Our spirit and soul will live forever. But one day, these bodies are going to go back to the ground and sleep and wait the morning of the resurrection. So I understand there's some genetic things and there's some illnesses that hit our life that are not divine judgments on us. So please separate that from your thinking. So God knew this man was going through a situation in his life. For whatever reason, he's going through it. And Jesus just said, the thing I want to make perfectly clear to you is, listen, it has nothing to do with his sin or his parents, neither. It's not about that. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to manifest my work, verse 3, through this man's life. Let me, let me explain that to you, what I, what I see in that. What he's going to say is he's saying, I see this man's blindness. It's a bad situation, a miserable life, a lot of mystery surrounding the whys of it. I'm not going to get into that. What I'm going to do is take this man where he is, and I'm going to change his life. I'm going to take him where he is. Listen, I'm going to take him as he is, and I'm going to change his life. You know what God does when he comes to a person? He doesn't clean us up in order that he, can, see, that he can accept us. Listen, Christianity is not behavior modification. God doesn't change you so that he can love you. He loves you so ultimately he can change you. You see the difference? Romans 5, 8, while we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. So you come just as you are, like the old hymn, just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. This man didn't see Jesus, he's blind. Jesus saw him. And not only did he see him in his condition, he goes to him. And the Bible says he simply reaches down and he takes some dirt and he spits in it, if you can imagine this, makes a little mud pack, puts it in the guy's eyes and says, go to Siloam and wash. Now there's where the man's faith kicked in. He heard what God said to do in order to be saved, in order to be made whole, and he did what God told him to do. That's all faith is. Faith is just acting on what God has said. Romans, 8, uh, uh, Romans 17, faith comes by hearing, 10, 17, hearing by the word of God. So you get a word and you act on it. That's faith. He got God's word. This is what you do. And it's interesting, Jesus healed him by putting mud in his eyes. Now, now go with me on this. Jesus healed three men of blindness in the New Testament. One man, this man, he did by putting mud in his eye. That's how he did it. The other man, he put a little spit and he put that in his eyes so the guy could see, all right? Third guy, he touched his eyes and he could see. Now here's where I need you to go with me. Imagine those three guys are in church after those experiences. And those guys in church and they're gonna testify. You've been in one of those services? Just share what Jesus has done for you. And the first guy stands up. He's in First Baptist. He stands up and says, this is what God does. 
When God's going to do something, he'll put mud in your eye. That's how God works, man. God puts mud in your eye. And when he puts mud in your eye, you can see. And the other guys from First Assembly of God, and he stands up and he says, no, man, if God's going to give you sight, he'll spit in your eye. That's how he does it. <laughs> he didn't put mud in your eye, he'll spit in your eye. That's how he did it for me. Then the third guy's from the Presbyterian church. He goes, both of you guys are crazy. You do not know what you're talking about. If God's going to heal you of blindness, he will touch your eyes. Now, all three of them were right. God healed them three different ways. Religion always tries to put God in a box and define what he does by what he did for you individually. And sometimes he does something different for someone else. He's God. He can do what he wants to do. And I'm just suggesting to you that when that meeting was over, out of that meeting came three denominations, the Muddites, the Spitites, and the Touchites. <laughs> That's how most of that gets started. <laughs> so I'm just saying that he told the man to go wash in Siloam. Now, the pool of Siloam was significant and historic in, in, in Jewish history because the pool had been created by King Hezekiah, who was facing the threat of the Assyrians overrunning the city. And how these uh, enemy forces would do, they would surround a city and cut it off from supplies. And in cutting it off from supplies, you could then you know, easily capture the city. Well, Hezekiah was a prepper, so he had plenty of food, <laughs> but he didn't have enough water. So he goes to the springs of Gishon, and at the springs of Gion, which were abundant springs, he created an aqueduct that would fl flow under the, under the walls, and he created a pool to capture the water. The pool was Siloam. And there at the pool, the people were saved. And there at the pool, the people were refreshed. And there at the pool, they had the water uh, for all of the ceremonial functions of the temple and to be able to worship. So I'm saying that pool had significance. The pool meant sent. It meant waters sent to save. And why he sent him there? He said, because remember John 7, Jesus said to the woman, out of, if you drink of the waters I give, you'll never thirst again. <laughs> Jesus was saying, I have the ability I have the ability to affect your life physically. I have the ability to affect your life eternally. And he did. The man went and did what Jesus said, and he was the later, verse 11, if you skip down, he was giving his testimony <laughs> in the temple of what Jesus had done for him. In fact, somebody asked him, who did this? And he said, I, I'm not sure. I just know his name is Jesus. I, I know I was once blind, but now I see because I met a man named Jesus. And I tell you, Jesus still makes all the difference in the life of a person. I close with this. I heard about a, a young man who came from a good family, loving parents, but he did what a lot of kids do. They get that age where they know everything. No one can tell them anything, you know. They just get ignoranter and ignoranter, but they don't see it. <laughs> and, you know, they just kind of, you know how you've seen the kid before. Well, that was this kid. Nobody could reach them. They're not going to respond to what you tell them. They're going to have to respond to what they experience, right? You can say, that's going to hurt. Don't do that. That's going to hurt. And you just got to say, they're going to do it, and it's going to hurt. That's this kid. So he went down his road. He's the smartest guy in the world, had them all figured out. Nobody could tell him anything. And all of a sudden, he locks in, as many do. Remember I said unhealthy people are attracted to unhealthy people. It isn't long until he is absolutely addicted. He's absolutely on a downward spiral. And he's on a, a ship. He was working on a ship, and he's on a ship, and his life is finally in despair. All of his friends are gone, no contact with his family. And all he remembered as he just lay there in the ship is he remembered his mom talking to him about God. 
He remembered his mom telling him that God loves you. No matter who, where you go or what you do, he always loves you. Never forget that. He's always available. You can always call out to him, and he'll always be there for you. And at the lowest point in his life, he remembered that. And sometimes people don't look up till they hit the bottom. Sometimes it has to happen. And this guy bottomed out. He absolutely hit the bottom of his life. He realized I'm not as smart as I thought I was. I can't make this on my own. And he calls out. He basically says, God, if you're there and you can help me and forgive me, I'm going to trust you and put all my faith in you. And later he said he believed God did hear him and he changed him. He said, my life began to go in a different direction. And he said, I actually got involved in, in ministry and trying to help other people who were making similar mistakes that I've made. And he later wrote about his experience when he intersected with God and received him. And here's how he described it. He said, it's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And then he said, I was blind, but now I see. Friend, I don't care who you are from where you come or what you're going through. There's a God who loves you, accessible to you. He'll receive you if you'll swallow your pride and accept him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my friends in the room today who've really blessed us with the time given us this hour of their life to be here, and I'm grateful to them. Thank you for all those who are watching online who made time to be a part of the service. And Lord, now my heart goes out to people who are going through some of the mysteries of life, trying to connect the dots. Some of them, life has just become a miserable experience and a hard journey. I pray they'll realize that you, according to Romans 8, 28, can take anything that they encounter and make it work. You can turn it around. You can make it work for their good and ultimately for your glory that the works of God as it was in the life of this man can be manifested in their life. So give them the courage to trust you. For those who do know you, I, I pray they can gather up all the questions that they have as I've done in my life and lay them at your feet and just say, God, I don't understand this, but I trust you. And for those who are watching and those in the room who may never have received you as Savior, they hadn't come to that moment where they just swallowed their pride and said, God, I need you. May this be the moment when they pray a simple prayer like this and say, Lord, with all that I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin. Be a reality in my life. This is the prayer I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.